Listen, if you are new here today um, and have no idea who I am, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at our church. And uh, this morning, we are continuing our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, today, we find ourselves in week four and part four of this series through Ecclesiastes. Now, for those of you who have been following along, you know that in week one of the series, we began by asking and answering the who question, who is the author? And we said that the author is King Solomon. Then in week two, we asked and we answered uh, the why question. Why is the book being written? And we look specifically at verse three because in verse three, Solomon asks a 30,000 foot question, which is, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That is the, the question that he asks at the 30,000 foot level. And then in verse two, he provides the 30,000 foot answer, which is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Then last week, we looked at essentially the first idol that, that Solomon pursued. And here's the thing about the book of Ecclesiastes. I really couldn't put my, my finger on why I loved this book so much. And then I realized the reason why I love this book so much is because the book of Ecclesiastes is essentially a book about idols. It is a book on all the different idols that we are tempted to worship, of all the different idols that we are tempted to find our significance and our security and our satisfaction and our salvation in. That is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. So last week we looked at the first idol which he pursued, which was the idol of human progress, the idol of human advancement. And then this week we are going to look at the next idol that he pursues, which is the idol of human wisdom, the idol of worldly wisdom. Now, to get a closer look at this idol, um, we are going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 12 through 18. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, and we will be in verse 12 through 18 of chapter 1. And if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're ready, say I'm ready. Solomon writes, I the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom, everyone say wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked, everyone say crooked, cannot be made straight, and what is lacking, everyone say lacking, cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, as we come before you this morning, I am just so grateful for the opportunity that you have given us to gather again. God, we are grateful for the baptism. We are grateful for the opportunity to, to worship you. Lord, what a, what a blessing it is to be gathered 
um, as the body of Christ today. And, and Father, I pray right now that, that as we step into this text, Lord, as we unpack and expose human wisdom, worldly wisdom, I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, I pray that it would not be worldly wisdom that is preached from this pulpit this morning, but that it would be godly wisdom, that it would be wisdom from you and not from man. God, I pray in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that this message would result in our people better understanding the message and in better undertaking the mission. Help us to be gospel-centered disciples who go out proclaiming the message and pursuing the mission. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we ask that you would be here among us and we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. All right, so like I already mentioned, uh, this morning we are looking at the next idol uh, that Solomon pursues, which is the idol of human wisdom, the idol of worldly wisdom. And, and I would argue that in this passage, Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18, there are two lessons, there are two principles that we learn about worldly wisdom, about human wisdom. And the first lesson that we learn here in this passage is we learn about the pursuit of wisdom. Everyone say pursuit. Pursuit. Here's what we're going to see. In this passage, Solomon is going to give himself over to the pursuit of wisdom. And, and here's the thing about the pursuit that Solomon is going to go on. I would argue that there is no one in human history that is more qualified for the pursuit of wisdom human wisdom than Solomon. There's no one. And, and, and here, here's why I say this. I know that seems almost exaggerated, like that out of all the candidates that have ever walked the earth, Solomon is the most qualified candidate for this pursuit of wisdom. But, but the reason why I say that is because we talked about this in week one. Uh, Solomon is the son of King David and his mother is Bathsheba. And at some point we're gonna talk about that story. But what I want you to know is that King David is considered by many to be the most famous king uh, with the most renown in the history of Israel. But his son Solomon was the wisest king. And, and the reason why is because after Solomon took over his father's reign, after he became uh, the third king of Israel, we, we are told that the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream and essentially the Lord offers him a multiple choice test. He says, look, you are now the king of Israel. What would you like me to give you? And so the Lord offers wealth and the Lord offers influence and the Lord offers military success. And Solomon says to the Lord in the dream, I want wisdom. The reason why I want wisdom is because I want to lead your people well. These people do not belong to me. These people belong to you. And so in light of that, I want you to give me wisdom. And so God honors the request. And not only does he give Solomon wisdom, but he also gives him everything else. He gives him wisdom and he gives him wealth and he gives him influence and he gives him military success. He gives him peace. All the things that he didn't ask for are given in addition to the thing that he did ask for, which was human wisdom. So Solomon is given wisdom, he is given insights, he is given knowledge, 
And, and the thing is, is we can talk about him being this qualified candidate, but the Bible actually tells us just how wise Solomon was. Because in 1 Kings chapter 4, here's what it says. It says, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. Now, let's pause here for a second. What does the Bible say when it comes to, about, when it comes to the source of his wisdom? Who gave him the wisdom? God. God gave him wisdom and understanding. Here's why this is important, and we'll come back to this later on. But, but what's so almost ironic of, about this passage is that Solomon is searching for something horizontally that's already been given to him vertically. Please don't miss that. He is pursuing wisdom. He is pursuing knowledge. He is pursuing insight. But we're going to talk about here in a second that it's not biblical wisdom. It's not godly wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. It's horizontal wisdom. So Solomon is going out to look for what he's already been given in God. Now, the reason why I say that is because what we're going to see as we work through this content is that we are guilty of the same thing. There are many Christians here today, including myself, and I go, what I do is I go out into the world looking for significance and for security and for satisfaction and for salvation, things that have already been given to me vertically by God. And what Paul Tripp talks about is that when we get gospel amnesia, we go out into the world horizontally looking for what's already been given to us vertically. That if Solomon reminded himself of who he was in God, this passage would not exist. But he went out looking for something that was already his. It says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breath of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men. Wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and He-Man. Apparently He-Man is in the Bible. Uh, Calcol and Darda, not Donda, but Darda was there. And it says the, the sons of Mahol and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Verse 32. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs, which was very specific, was 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So, so the reason why I read this to you is because I want you to know that this isn't an exaggeration when I say to you that there's, ne there's never been a person more qualified for the pursuit of wisdom than King Solomon. And the Bible itself tells us that, okay? So he goes out and he's looking for wisdom, but, but don't miss it. He is looking for wisdom under the sun. He, he is looking for wisdom apart from God. This isn't biblical wisdom that he wants. It's human wisdom. It's worldly wisdom that Solomon is pursuing. But, but not only is he the right profile, he also gives this, this pursuit the totality of his person. And, and we see that because look what it says in verses 12 and 13. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart 
to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So we see the identity of the person, right? It's Solomon. But we also get an idea, an understanding of his investigation. Why? Because he talks about the fact that he didn't do this half-heartedly. He gave himself over to it. How do we know? Well, the word here applied in, in Hebrew, it, it, it carries the idea of giving yourself over to something. To deliver yourself over to something. Your whole person. He was giving it everything he had. And then just to prove that, he says, I applied my heart. And, and the thing about the word heart is that the word heart in the Bible, it, it doesn't just refer to our emotions. When, when we think of heart, we think of emotions. We think of feelings, right? We think of the Hallmark Channel. We think of boys to men songs, right? When we, when we, are, when we think of heart, we think of all the emotions and all the feels. But the reality is, is that when the Bible uses the word heart, it's talking about your inner man. It's talking about the entirety of your inner person. So the word heart in Hebrew, it refers to your head, your heart, and your hands, to your intellect, to your volition, to your emotions, spiritually, physically, relationally, all, the, the, all those things. It's, it's, it's an all-encompassing encompassing term. In other words, when Solomon says that he applied his heart, what he is saying is that he gave himself over fully and totally and completely to the pursuit of human wisdom, to the pursuit of worldly wisdom. And then he says that he applied his heart to seek and to search. The word here in Hebrew for seek it, it carries the idea of, of getting really in-depth into something, of, of zooming in into something, magnifying it, really investigating it, right? So, so it almost carries the idea of getting at the ground level and, and, and zooming in on a subject or a topic. That's the word there for seek. Then the word for search is the opposite in Hebrew. It, it, it's actually, instead of zooming in, it carries the idea of zooming out. And when we see this word used in scripture, it is normally used to talk about soldiers going out to get the lay of the land on, on an enemy, to spy out the land, to, to survey a, a large plot of land. So, so if the word seek has to do with zooming in on a subject, the word search has to do with zooming out. So not only is he getting the ground level experience, he's also getting the 30,000 foot level experience. In other words, what he wants us to know is that this is a comprehensive study that he is taking place in or partaking in. And he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom. Now, in Hebrew, there are numerous words for wisdom, but the most commonly used word in Hebrew uh, uh, for wisdom is the Hebrew word hokmah. And uh, essentially what hokmah means is it means to live in a skillful manner. It means to, Tim Keller in his uh, devotional on Proverbs, he defines this word. And what he says is that the reason why hokmah is so important in the life of a believer is because hokmah helps you to navigate not the black and white of the world, but the gray of the world. And our world is very gray. It's not always a, a black or white decision that we are to make. You actually might find yourself in a season right now where you have to make a decision and there isn't a right decision or a wrong decision. So what Hokma does is it helps you make the wise decision. 
That's what the word chokmah means. Now, the other thing I want you to see about this word is that it's not, it doesn't just include your head, what's happening up here, but it also includes your heart and your hands. It's the entirety of your person. It has to do with what you behold at the head level, what you believe at the heart level, and how you behave at the hand level. And we know that it includes the heart and not just the head because this Hebrew word for chokmah is the, for wisdom is the same word that uh, Moses uses in Psalm 90. In Psalm 90, Moses says, teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. He doesn't say so that we may fill our heads with wisdom. He says so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So, so chokmah here, this type of wisdom that, that Solomon is talking to us about is the, is the type of wisdom that affects all of our person, our head, our heart, and our hands. Now, the last thing I want you to see about this word wisdom is this. Wisdom, in light of this word chokmah, is an individual who is able to connect all of life. A wise person, in light of Scripture, is someone who sees that their work life has a direct impact on their family life. And their family life has a direct impact on their spiritual life. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, the definition for a fool is an individual who doesn't see that all of life is connected. It's the individual who says, I can work 85 hours and my family will be fine. That's foolish in light of Scripture because the wise person sees that all of life is connected. All of life is connected. So that's what the word there hokma means and, and that is the word that Solomon uses that is the word that like I already mentioned Moses uses also in Psalm 90 but here's the thing this pursuit of human wisdom this pursuit of worldly wisdom it didn't actually start with Solomon the, the, the pursuit of worldly and human wisdom actually started back in the book of Genesis now, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but when I was studying the, the book of Ecclesiastes over the, over the summer, I was surprised to see that there were many scholars and commentators that argued that a lot of the arguments that Solomon makes in Ecclesiastes are based in the book of Genesis. And I was like, I did like an eye roll. I'm like, yeah, sure, okay, whatever. And yet, this is our fourth week, and this is the third time we're going back to Genesis. Just to show that Solomon here is addressing and diagnosing a lot of the, the, the issues and problems that started all the way back in Genesis. And so in light of that, what I would argue is that the first pursuit of, of human wisdom, of worldly wisdom, is not in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, but it's actually in Genesis chapter 3. And, and look what it says in Genesis chapter 3. And look what, okay, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, I want, I want to pause here. I want you to see something. It's talking about Satan here. Satan is the serpent, and it says that he was more crafty. Now, what's interesting about this word crafty in Hebrew is that it is a synonym to wisdom. In other words, what it's saying is that the serpent had a certain type of wisdom because the word crafty there, it doesn't mean that he was good at crafts. Like, it doesn't mean he had a Pinterest account, right? <laughs> but what crafty here means is that he was shrewd, that he was subtle, that he was sly. So, so Satan 
is offering his own type of wisdom. Worldly wisdom is what Satan has. And it says he wasn't more crafty than uh, Adam and Eve. It says he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So he goes up to Eve and it says, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So, so Satan shows up and in his craftiness, in his own shrewdness and form of wisdom, he questions God's wisdom. And he says, did God actually say, right? Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the, fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then she adds something that God didn't say. She says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. God did say they would die, but he did not say they couldn't touch it. God didn't care if they put a tree house up there. He didn't care if they put one of those tree swings or if they got a, a knife and put, you know, Adam loves Eve in a heart. He, he, didn't, he didn't care if they carved that in. God didn't care if they touched the tree. He never said that. God didn't want them to eat from the tree. And so already you see humanity not being able to combat the wisdom of Satan with the wisdom of God. She doesn't know God's word well enough. And so she falls for his wisdom. She falls for his temptation. So he goes from questioning it to straight contradicting it. In verse four, it says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Now, here's the thing about this phrase, your eyes will be opened. He's not talking there about physical sight. It's not like Adam and Eve were blind and then all of a sudden they ate from the tree and they can see. He's not talking about physical sight. He's talking about spiritual sight. And back in the 1300s, there was an author who used this phrase for the first time, the idea of your mind's eye, which essentially has to do with the ability to see spiritually, the, the ability to see that there's, there's more going on than just the physical. So when it says that your eyes will be opened, he's making them a promise that you will see something that you did not see before. You will have more insight. You will have more understanding. You will have more discernment. You will have more perception. And then look what happens next. And he says, and when you do that, you will be like God. Again, we talked about this last week. The idol of human progress is we don't want to be with God. We want to be like God. And, and so the, 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 that wisdom is straight from the pit of hell. It's straight from Satan. Don't be with God. Be like God. And in this phrase right here, knowing good and evil, it, it's, it's so good. I got so excited when I studied this this week that I literally, uh, Lily was downstairs, I ran out of my home office and I looked over the balcony and I'm like, I love the Bible. <laughs> and she's like, well, that's good because it's kind of your job, right? Like, <laughs> but but it's passages like this that really show me that I will study the Bible my whole life and only know like 3% of it. Because, he, because here, here's what, this phrase means. I always thought, and maybe you're like me, that good and evil had to do with morality, like doing the good thing and avoiding the bad thing, obeying the rule or not obeying the rule, right? I always thought that good and evil here had to do with morality. Now, it's not less than that in Hebrew, but it's much more than that. And here's why. Because the word here for good in Hebrew has to do with prosperity. It has to do with well-being. It has to do with shalom, to be well. 
It refers to the good life. So it's not just the religious life, it's the good life. It's an experiential, uh, quantifiable good life, right? That's what good here means. And then the word for evil, again, we would think that evil just means wicked or, or, or bad. But what it actually means, it means uh, injury or misfortune or distress or unhappiness. So, so, so get this. What Satan is offering Adam and Eve is he is saying, if you eat from this fruit and take on my wisdom, I will show you what the good life is, what prosperity is, what success is, what fruitfulness is, and I will also show you how to avoid all the bad stuff, the difficult stuff, the things that will hinder you in your pursuit of the good. That changes already what we see here. Because here's what I always struggled with. I've heard commentators say, well, Adam and Eve, God was eventually going to teach them all the things, the good and evil. But instead of waiting on God, they got it from Satan. But I always struggled with the fact that God was going to teach them what evil was. But that's not what the word evil here means. It's not bad or wicked. It carries the idea of God was going to show them the things that would not be for their flourishing. He was going to show them the things that were not good for their well-being. He was going to show them the, the things that were going to lead to their destruction. Does that make sense? Because here's what's also crazy about this idea. Actually, no, no, let me wait, let me wait, let me wait. Okay, so good, evil, be like God. He's offering the good life and successful life, fruitful life, and how to avoid the difficult life, the injury and, and, and misfortune, right? That, that's what we mean here. So it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, which is satisfaction idol, and that it was a delight to the eyes, which is the significance idol, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, which is the security idol, she took of its fruit. Now, let's pause here. Here it says that she desired the fruit because it would make her wise. Now, what's interesting is that the word here for wise is not the Hebrew word hokmah. The word here for wise is the Hebrew word sokel or sekel. And, and here's why it's different. Because similar to hokmah, there's a layer of morality to it. But specifically, this Hebrew word sekel, it carries the idea of how do you live in such a way so that you might live the good life? How do you live a prosperous life? How do you live a bountiful life? That, that's what the word sekel there means. It has to do with, again, living the good life, avoiding the bad life and living the good life, being successful, being fruitful. So, so that's why it says when you combine this word, sakel, with what good and evil means, what you realize is that what Satan was actually doing is he was telling Adam and Eve not necessarily what was good and bad. He was trying to show them how do you live the good life apart from God? And how do you avoid difficulty and turmoil and distress apart from God? How do you become like God instead of be with God? That, that's what he's offering them. And that's why the Hebrew word here is the word sekel and not the word hokmah. Now, here's the other thing about that word wise. It, it, because of how it is, it has to do with living a successful or fruitful or prosperous life, right? That's what the word there means. It's the type of wisdom that you don't necessarily learn in a book, but you learn from a person. It's a type of wisdom that happens, get this, through instruction and or discipleship. 
So, so get this, what Adam and Eve are doing when they go to the tree to find wisdom horizontally instead of vertically, they are essentially going to a different teacher, a different disciple maker, a different instructor. So, so in, in a way, they were pursuing the right truth, but they chose the wrong teacher. They were pursuing the right information, but they chose the wrong instructor. Instead of being discipled by God and God over time showing them what was good and what was evil, what was the good life and what was the bad life, they instead chose to be taught by, instructed by, and discipled by Satan himself. So she took of its fruit and it says that she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and then the eyes of both were opened. So in a way, what Satan promised happened, their eyes were opened. But what's interesting is instead of being enlightened, they were entrapped. Instead of freedom, they found frustration. They tried to circumvent what God said true wisdom was and where God says wisdom came from. And all of a sudden, instead of significance and security and satisfaction and salvation, what they ended up with was sorrow, sin, and shame. It says, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Ever since this moment, we have been in the loincloth business. We have been covering up our issues with horizontal, worldly, human wisdom. Ever since, humanity has been looking for wisdom under the sun instead of wisdom above the sun. And actually, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, he gets after this a little bit. He unpacks this even more. He says, for although they knew God, he's talking about humanity apart from God. For although they knew God, because we looked at a couple weeks ago that God has put eternity in our hearts, right? For I know they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But because they did this, it says they became futile or futile in their thinking. This is the only time in the New Testament where this word is used. And it literally harkens back to the vanity and the futility that Solomon's been talking about. In their, specifically in their what? Thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. So they became futile in their thinking. They became foolish in their hearts. Again, head, hard hands were affected by this. And we know that it affected their hands because then he talks about what he gave them over to. Humanity claiming to be wise, we're not actually wise, but claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. God said, okay, well, not my will, then your will. This is the passive wrath of God. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, get this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now, here's the thing that I, really frustrates me about the ESV and the NIV and the NASB, pretty much every English translation. I don't know why they do this. 
But this phrase here for a lie shouldn't be written this way in any translation because in Greek, it's not a, it's the. In Greek, it's a definite article. Paul here is talking about one specific lie. That humanity exchanged the truth for the lie. Well, he already used the word futile earlier, so the only lie he can be referring to is the lie that was believed in the garden. That ever since the garden, we have been believing the same exact lie. Not a different lie, the same exact one. That we can be like God by becoming wise and by discerning in ourselves what good is and what evil is. What the good life is and what the bad life is. That has been the same lie that we have been tempted to believe since the beginning. For the lie. And then he ends by saying this. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. So, so get this. This is what Paul is arguing here. What Paul is arguing is that humanity in the garden, we served the creator and we stewarded the creation. But ever since Genesis 3, we have served the creation and have tried to steward the creator. Or, or, or worse yet, we have tried to serve the creation and we have tried to supplant the creator. That has been the lie that we've believed, that we can actually do that. A few months ago, I had a conversation uh, with uh, someone on our staff. And then, crazy enough, like a couple weeks after that, I had another conversation about the same topic. And then I came across an article that talked about the same topic again. And here is the thing that jumped out at me. And I wanted to share that. This, this illustration, I've been waiting for it because I feel like it fits this sermon more than any other. It's so ironic to me that if you have an iPhone here, because that's the only option really, right? Like who has an Android? Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a few guys on our, on our elder board who have uh, Androids and it's, it ruins everything, but, it, but <laughs> we all got sin to deal with, I guess. Um, so here's the thing about the iPhone. If you turn your iPhone around and look at the back of it, it's interesting that the image, the logo for Apple, is an apple that has been bitten into. The irony in it is just shocking to me. And, and, and here's why, here's why. Because I'm not saying it's an apple that they ate, we don't know what fruit they ate, but you know the connection I'm making. That, that, that it's an apple that's been bitten into, and here's the thing. When we go to our phones, our phones reinforce the lie. Okay, here's why, here's why. When you go on your phone, the reason why phones work the way they work and we're so addicted to them is because it personalizes it to you. So every search, every like, every share, every click, every app is personalized to you. So your phone makes you think that you are the center of the universe. It makes you think that you can be like God because you're the center of the universe. And you're like, how does not everyone agree with me? Everything I come across agrees with me. <laughs> yeah, because that's how your phone works. Here's the other thing that the phone does. The phone makes you think you're omniscient. Omniscience is God's ability to know all things. Your phone, whether it be through a Google search, whether it be through chat GPT, whether it be through, you know, the, the however many YouTube videos you watch on a subject, it makes you think that you are omniscient. 
it makes you think that you have unlimited knowledge. And lastly, it also makes you think that you're omnipresent. Omnipresent means that God is everywhere at once. What does is, what is your phone do? It allows you to connect with people in different parts. It allows you to check in on people like a creep on social media and know what everybody's up to. That, so, so your phone makes you think the phone with the bin apple on the back, don't miss the irony here, makes you think that you are the center of the universe. It makes you think that you're omniscient and it makes you think that you're omnipresent because we have been believing the same lie since the beginning. That is what we see. Now, I would argue then that in light of that, the, the, the best way to describe this worldly wisdom, this, this, this human wisdom that we have settled for is the term ungodliness. We, as a result of this reality, are ungodly people. Now, for a long time, I thought godliness meant behaving like God. But that's not what it actually means. To behave like God means to be Christ-like. It's not Christ-likeness, it's godliness. Godliness in the Bible refers to thinking like God, thinking of God. And so as a result of what we are learning today, what that shows is, is that what we are most struggling with today is ungodliness. And a few years ago, I read a book by Dr. Jerry Bridges, and the name of the book was Respectable Sins. And the whole book is about 20-ish sins that are respectable in the West. So like gossip is one of the examples, right? But one of the examples was ungodliness. I remember thinking, I wonder why this is in here. And I remember reading that chapter, and here's what he says about ungodliness. And here's why I think it is such a symptom of this problem of worldly wisdom. He says, ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life, get this, with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence on God. Now, the sad fact is that many of us who are believers tend to live our daily lives with little or no thought of God. We may even read our Bibles and pray for a few minutes at the beginning of each day, but then we go out into the day's activities and basically live as though God doesn't exist. We seldom think of our dependence on God or our responsibility to him. We might go for hours with no thought of God at all. And he says this, in that sense, we are hardly different from our nice, decent, but unbelieving neighbor. God is not at all in his thoughts and is seldom and ours. That is worldly human wisdom. That is what has permeated our culture. Now, I didn't get to say this in the first service, but let me say this here. The, the Bible makes a distinction between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you the three differences between godly and worldly wisdom, okay? The first different the difference is the fount or the fountain of it. The, the second difference is the focus. And then the third difference is the fruit. So let me go through this quickly. The first difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom is the fountain of it. Where does it come from? It says in Proverbs 1 verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if your wisdom starts anywhere but with God, it is not 
godly wisdom, right? But what's interesting here is that in the passage, one of the things that stands out to me is how often Solomon says, I and myself and my heart. He barely mentions God, and, and, and he talks about I and me and myself, and I said in my heart, and I, and I talked to my heart. It's all about him. So the first difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom is the fountain. Godly wisdom starts with God because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Worldly wisdom starts with us. The second difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom is the focus, the focus. Now, now what do I mean by that? Worldly wisdom, there's two sides to worldly wisdom. There's the people who look backwards for an answer, and then there's the people who look forwards for an answer, okay? But neither look upward. So, so these words are super controversial in our culture, but they shouldn't be. And they're not so controversial right now, but in about 12 months from now, when the politics season kicks up, it's going to be real controversial. The, the first word is the word conservative, and the second word is the word progressive. Here's what's interesting. I read a book uh, by this professor at Notre Dame, and he said, I don't get why these words are so controversial. Because all conservatism means is that you are looking backward for an answer, and all progressivism means is that you're looking forward for an answer. The conservative says, our answer is back there somewhere. I don't know if that's 10 years back. I don't know if that's 30 years back. And he said, because of that, that's why a conservative in America can be very different from a conservative in South Africa or a conservative in England, because what they're seeking to conserve is different. But all it is is an individual who's looking backward. But me and Pastor Joe were talking about that this week. I'm like, you know what's funny about looking backward for an answer? That wherever era you're trying to conserve, let's say it's the 60s or the 50s or the 40s, up until 1980, I would not have been able to be the pastor of this church. So when we look back for answers, because it was a better world back then, you got to ask, who, who was it better for? Right? But then the progressive lie is just as dangerous. It's either the answers are back there or the answers are up there. No, it's the next election. It's the next technology. It's the next breakthrough. But here's what's crazy, church. Godly wisdom, which is different from worldly wisdom, doesn't look backward, doesn't look forward. Godly wisdom looks upward. My, my, my uh, uh, wisdom is not backward or forward. It is upward in God. That's where true wisdom is found. And then the last distinction is the fruit of wisdom. You know whether you have worldly wisdom or godly wisdom by the fruit of your life. It's not just your, your fountain. It's not just your focus, but it's, it's your fruit. That, that someone who is pursuing godly wisdom pursues godly fruit. They have a godly walk. And, and we've talked about this in the past, but I think it bears repeating. One of the things we have to be careful with, church, is that when we try to take God's place, right? When we try to sit on God's throne, we also have to take on God's thoughts. No one tells you that part. When we try to take God's crown, we also have to take God's cares. And all of a sudden, we're anxious, and we're worried, and we're freaking out, and we're trying to control things that we were never able to control because we are the creation and not the creator. But the person who's growing in godly wisdom, we read it earlier, is growing in dependence on God. They're leaning on God. They're not leaning on their own understanding. They're leaning on God's understanding. See the difference? And so that is the pursuit of wisdom. 
Now, I want to conclude this morning by looking at the second and final truth, which is the personification of wisdom. The personification of wisdom. So here's what Solomon does. In this passage, he essentially goes on a journey. And on this journey, what he discovers is essentially three realities, three observations, three conclusions. So he goes on the path, and not only does he tell us about the path that he goes on, he actually tells us about the destinations that he ends up at. And there are three things that Solomon discovers, three things that he concludes. And I'm going to read these to you as we go through the the passage again. I'm highlighting his conclusions, and I'm highlighting his observations. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business. Everyone say unhappy. Business that God has given to the children of man or of Adam to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And then he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And then he ends by saying this, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. And then he concludes in verse 18 by saying, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So Solomon here, he actually gives us the conclusion, the the observation of his pursuit, what, what he actually discovered at the end of his pursuit of wisdom. And there are three conclusions that he comes to. And we're gonna work through them backwards in reverse. The first one that we're going to look at is verse 18. He says, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So the first conclusion and observation that Solomon, it's the third one, but we're looking at it first, is that the more wisdom and knowledge you have, the more vexation and sorrow you have. So here's what he says. I went out. And I pursued it with all my heart, with all my head, all my heart, all my hands. And what I discovered is that the more, you remember the the more you know commercial on NBC? The more you know, the worse things get. That's what he's discovered. That with much wisdom, there is much vexation. And with increasing knowledge, there is increasing sorrow. He said, I got to the end of it. And instead of getting to an answer, I just have a better understanding of the questions. Instead of getting to the cure, I just have a better understanding of the disease. Instead of getting to the solution, I just have a better understanding of the problem. Now, the reason why he says that much wisdom and much knowledge lead to vexation and sorrow is because of the observation and the conclusion in the previous section. Look what he says there. Here's why he says what he says in verse 18. Because the more he looks and the more he searched, what he realized is that what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, the word here for crooked, it it carries the idea of diverting off the right path, but it also carries the idea of being bent, like of a bar being bent. Now, what's interesting about that is that this word for crooked has the same root word in Hebrew that the word iniquity does. 
And iniquity, we, we talked about this last week, uh, there's sin and there's transgression at the individual level. And then if one generation doesn't deal with their sin, it becomes iniquity for the next generation. And the word there, iniquity in Hebrew, it means it's the word avon. And it means to be bent towards something, to be predisposed towards something. So, so this word crooked is the same root word of the word iniquity. And he says what is crooked, what is bent, cannot be made straight. The word there, straight, means to put things in order, to, to put things and restore things back to how they used to be. What is bent cannot be straightened. And then he says what is lacking, the word here lacking in Hebrew, it, mean, it, it means a, a, a deficiency. It, it literally means something that is non-existent. It, the, the word picture that, that came to mind as I was studying this word is, is like we've been given a puzzle box and we put all the pieces together and then we get to the end and there's a ton of pieces missing. And they're not in the box. And we don't know what to do. That's what the word there lacking means. It means to need or want something that is non-existent. And then he says, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The word here for counted, it, it, it carries the idea of numbering or quantifying things, but it also can carry the idea of taking inventory. So inventory has been taken by Solomon, and what he's discovered is that there's something missing. So the first conclusion is that with much knowledge and with mu much wisdom, there is vexation and sorrow. The second conclusion is that what is crooked cannot be made straight, what is lacking cannot be counted, and those two conclusions lead us to the primary conclusion, which is, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of Adam to be busy with. Now, here's what's beautiful, church, which might seem depressing at first, but I promise that it's good. He says, he says this is the third conclusion, the third observation. It is an unhappy business, right? The word here for unhappy is the same Hebrew word that we see in Genesis chapter three. When it said the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the word there, evil, is the same Hebrew word that's being used here. Which goes to show that it's not evil the way we think evil is. It's not wicked or immoral evil. It has to do with the bad life, a difficult life, distress, anxiety, unhappiness. Same Hebrew word. So, so here's what Solomon is doing. Solomon is saying, that because of the sin of Adam and Eve, evil came into the world, unhappiness came into the world, dissatisfaction came into the world, emptiness came into the world. So on the one hand, from the human perspective, we chose it, and yet from the divine perspective, God gave us over to it. Because it says that God is the one who has given us the unhappy business. It's so easy to get angry at God and be like, why would he do that to us? Why would God give us this unhappy business? Why would God uh, assign this to us? Well, he was only doing it in response to our decision-making. He's like, okay, you want to know good and evil apart from me? Have at it. You don't want to do my will? Then go do your will. And it says that the Lord himself was the one who, in response to their decision of wanting to know good and evil apart from him, gave them over to the unhappy business that we are now busy with. And I love that it says children of Adam because, again, it's connecting right back to the garden. It says, I have seen everything that is, he keeps going, I've seen everything that is un done in the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So, so he ends with this, this, this conclusion 
that, that with much knowledge and much wisdom, there's vexation and there's sorrow. Why? Because the more you learn and the more you know, the more you realize that what is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. Why is that the case? Because God has given, over, uh, given us over to an unhappy, empty, vain, grievous task. See the connection of it? Those are the, the, the conclusions. So here's what this means, church. What it means is, is that wisdom, I say this as often as I can, of every idol we're going to look at, wisdom is a great gift, but a terrible God. Wisdom is a wonderful filter, but a terrible foundation. Wisdom will help you identify the questions, but it will give you none of the answers. It will help you diagnose the problem, but it will give you none of the cures. And here's, I think, the biggest mistake we make with wisdom. We assume, and I'm guilty of this sometimes as well, that wisdom, biblical wisdom, is primarily a set of principles and precepts. But what the Bible teaches is that wisdom is not a set of principles or of precepts. What the Bible teaches is that wisdom is a person. Wisdom is a person. Here's how I can prove to you that wisdom is a person. Because in Genesis 3, when we looked at it earlier, by Adam and Eve eating from the tree, they gained precepts. They gained principles. Like there was things they did not know that now they knew. And yet it says they became foolish. Why? Because even though they gained precepts and principles, they lost a person. And by losing a person, they became foolish. Even though they gained information, they lost intimacy. And by losing intimacy, they became foolish. So what that means is, is that what we see in Scripture is that wisdom is primarily a person. It's not a set of precepts. It's not a set of principles. It's a person. As a matter of fact, in the book of Proverbs, Again and again, Solomon, out of all people, he talks about how wisdom is a person and that this person cries out from the street corners. It calls out. He personifies wisdom in the book of Proverbs. That there's a person who calls out and cries out. So in the Old Testament, wisdom is a person who calls out and cries out. In the New Testament, wisdom is a person who came down to confront our worldly human wisdom. So, so who is the, the wisdom of God? Who is this person that the Bible is talking to us about? Well, look what it says in Matthew chapter 11. The individual identifies themselves, and here's what it says in verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a, glut, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then he ends by saying this, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So, so the individual talking here is connecting his behavior with the personification of wisdom in Proverbs. And the person who is talking here is the Lord Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And here's what I love. What Jesus implies, Paul shows up and proclaims. The brother declares it. And look what he says. 1 Corinthians 1, 19, it says, For it is written, this is God talking in the Old Testament, I will destroy 
the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then it says, where, where is the one who is wise and where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, because we couldn't, we couldn't through our wisdom know God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That, that, that the message of the gospel is a foolish message to man. But it is the wisest thing that we can preach in light of God's eyes. I, as a young pastor, when I first started in ministry, I can't tell you how many times I found myself near by, by hospital beds or I would go visit families that were struggling and I would try to think of like this really smart, you know, deep thing to say. And the longer I've been in ministry, what I've realized is the best thing I can offer them is Christ and him crucified. That is the wisest thing I can say. Hey, I'm sorry you're going through what you're going through, but in Jesus, you have a, a, a man who was acquainted with sorrow and he took your shame, your sin, and he took your shame and he, he took all those things for you and because he was crucified, now you may live. So, so Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That Jesus Christ is both the power and the wisdom of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is also the power of God unto sanctification. It is the, most, is the wisest thing we can do or preach or say or share. And in verse 25, it says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being, get this, might boast in the presence of God. And then verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what I love about Jesus is that he didn't just come to deal with our wisdom problem, but he came to deal with our worship problem. He came to deal with our sin problem. He came to deal with our sorrow and our vexation. He came to deal with our separation from God because it says that in addition to being our wisdom, he also came to be our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption church. Come on. That's beautiful, church. That, that, that our Savior, it says in Isaiah 53 that, that he bore our iniquities, the, the crookedness. He, he, he took on the crookedness. He bore it. He took it upon himself for you and for me. And then what's crazy is that it also says that he was numbered among the transgressors. Same Hebrew word where, where Solomon says, I counted and we were lacking. In, in Isaiah, that same Hebrew word is used again. And it says that Jesus Christ, the son of God, the wisdom of God, the redemption of God, the salvation of God, he was counted among the transgressors. That's crazy. 
that Jesus Christ was numbered among us. He was treated like us so that we might then be treated like him. He is the man who was acquainted with sorrows. He took our vexation. He took our sin. sin. He took our shame. He took the thorns. It says that Adam and Eve were given thorns and thistles. He took the the thorns and was beautiful about redemption. We said that the word crooked means a, a bent bar. And Pastor J.D. Greer says that what religion tries to do is religion tries to unbend the bar in our own strength. But the gospel doesn't come to bend the bar. The gospel comes to melt the bar. Grace melts the bar, and then God can do whatever he wants with the bar. In Proverbs 3.13, Solomon, of all people, Solomon writes, blessed is the man who finds wisdom. That's the Old Testament. Do you know what the New Testament says? Blessed is the man who is found by wisdom. Now that's true blessedness. So if the height of human foolishness is humanity replacing God, then that means that the height of divine wisdom is God replacing humanity. Because what we see is that wisdom is a great gift, but a terrible God. It is a wonderful filter, but a terrible foundation. Because true wisdom is not found in a set of precepts or principles, but true wisdom is found in a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello, Mission Church. We're so glad you're here uh, joining with us today. Uh, my name is Joe, and this is Katie. And uh, this is Katie's actual first time hosting. Katie, welcome. Thanks. Glad to <laughs> be here. She's always been the moderator, and now she is in front of the camera, which is really the place she loves to be in, right? Yes. <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> Today we have Stephen moderating, um, and so there's a QR code right here above my shoulder. Uh, Feel free to scan that code, and you can uh, ask us questions or engage with us today as we um, go through these questions in today's sermon. So, Katie, do you want to kick us off by reading through Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Mm. Joe, what is something new that God taught you in the message today? Did it confront you, convict you? or comfort you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all three, I would say. Um, probably it, it, it confronted me 
in this that apart from eternal abiding in the Lord, that we toil for earthly success. And really what Solomon says is that we strive after wind. Um, And so it's just, it's another reminder to me, even if I can preach that to my heart and my mind every day, I still lose sight of that every day. And so um, this was just another in-your-face confrontation to me that that earthly wisdom, earthly actions, those things are striving after wind apart from the eternal things of the Lord. Yeah. How about for you? Well, and that striving after wind, I mean, that's such a a good image um, because it's not something you can catch. That's right. Um, and so in all of his seeking of worldly wisdom, um, he realized that it was something that he couldn't um, catch by his own efforts. Yeah, that's right. Um, so it, it was very, very convicting, um, but comforting as well, especially as we'll get to later when we learn about um, the source when we talk of true about, wisdom. Yeah, yeah, the source of true yeah. wisdom. So in light of Dr. Jerry Bridges' definition for godliness that Will read, um, why is the trait of godliness so absent in the American church today? And how can we as believers intentionally grow in godliness? Um, in order to talk about that, let me go back to that and read it again. Okay. I know sometimes those quotes, we go through them really quickly in service, yeah. but um, it's good to reflect on it again. Um, he said... Um, Dr. Jerry Bridges said, Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence on God. Now the sad fact is that many of us who are believers tend to live our daily lives with little or no thought of God. We may even read our Bibles and pray for a few minutes at the beginning of each day, but then we go out into the day's activities and basically live as though God doesn't exist. We seldom think of our dependence on God or our responsibility to Him. We might go for hours with no thought of God at all. In that sense, we are hardly different from our nice, decent, but unbelieving neighbor. God is not at all in His thoughts and is seldom in ours. Wow. Um, So thinking about going back to that question, why is the trait of godliness so absent in the American church today? I think about all those things as Americans we seek after the satisfaction and significance. Um, We seek after um, success, worldly success. Um, We try to live our lives doing, you know, thinking that we're in control and really we're not. and so that goes back to that point in his quote he makes about um, just about that it when we don't seek the Lord, um, his wisdom and um, what he wants for us, it, we're no different than our unbelieving neighbor. Um, that's convicting. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, and for me, I'm thinking about you know, I wrote here that ungodliness is living life, your your actions, your thoughts, your desires, without the inclusion of God. And um, I, I just think that is why um, setting your mind on Him, like His mercies are new every morning. And so we have an opportunity to recognize the Lord when we wake up 
and then we look at our schedule we look at our calendar for the day um, that's why prayer is so essential i think because prayer kind of re uh, redirects us to our true north which is um, god knowing that i've got a lot on my plate to do there's a lot of things at work and in my relationships that i need to accomplish today um, but lord uh let me look to you for wisdom and not just for um, just going throughout my day, going to appointments, meeting people face to face, running into people wherever I go and just seeing things as transactional. Right. 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 And not pretending that we have control or trying to take control, but submitting our lives to the Lord and and letting um as we abide in him, letting him grow us in sanctification. When he does that, um, I, he lives inside of us. And so that's how we grow in godliness by abiding and um, allowing him to do that sanctifying work more and yeah. more. Yeah, that's good. Uh, okay. So how does discovering that wisdom is actually a person and not just a set of principles change the way you view it and grow in it? That, that was huge for me today. And that really is the crux of, of today's sermon. Uh, it makes it way more tangible, way more um, clear in my mind to think about um, the difference between godly wisdom, godliness, and earthly wisdom is that godliness is a person um, that is Jesus. And so um, I can look at principles like earthly wisdom gives me, which is seven steps on how to do this, three steps on how to do that, the best way to invest your money, the best way to invest your life. I can look at those things and say, um, those things in and of themselves may be good, but they're not godly. There, there's another level of godliness and true wisdom comes from the person of Jesus. And so what am I doing to seek true wisdom then? Well, I've got to spend time with Jesus. Mm -hmm. I've got to spend time knowing, um, knowing who he is and reflecting on my own life in light of what I discover about him. What would you say? Yeah. Well, just hearing you talk about that makes me think that it, it, it shows the line very clearly between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Um, because if I'm seeking my own thoughts or my own um, knowledge or seeking, you know, a, an expert or um, my friend's opinions on what to do or how to live, um, that's worldly wisdom. Yeah. Um, but if I'm truly seeking God, if I'm spending time with um, the Lord every day and I'm seeking Him first mm -hmm. and what He would say is right, um, then then that's godly wisdom. Yeah. So I'm seeking godly wisdom. And it's embarrassing how often <laughs> <laughs> I seek worldly wisdom. Yeah, I was thinking because we're both in vocational ministry. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking um, it's so easy to lose perspective and think I need to go into work and I have these meetings and things to accomplish. And um, just think about horizontal worldly wisdom and not go to the Lord and say, what, what are we really here to do, right? Yeah. We, can, we can get hung up on all the steps and what's the wisest thing to do. And um, it yeah. really centers it back down for me. It makes it, it, it kind of distills it down to get the worldly clutter out of your mind. Um, go to God, go to Jesus, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Well, and, you know, just talking about that, not just in vocational ministry, but in the church, um, we are the body of Christ and each of us plays a role. And so um, when we when we don't seek him um, and we're seeking our own wisdom or our own way, um, then we're not unified um, in Christ. And so, um, you know, God's design is for us to abide in him and for um, for each of us to play a role in the work that he ultimately um, has done and calls us to do in light of that. So that's right. And chasing after wind, as Solomon states, is uh, we see that it can be very destructive. It can be very destructive to do that. Yeah. And distracting. Yeah from why we're really here. That's right. Yeah. Well, um, what a great message today. Um, I'm really enjoying Ecclesiastes, and I hope that you are too. And um, thank you for having me in the chair today. It's been a a good change. So a stretch for sure. But we appreciate you joining us um, for Mission Church Online today. If you're in the area... Um, We'd love to have you at one of our physical locations in Memphis or Collierville. Um, But whether it's in person or online, we hope to see you back next week. Bye, guys.